Bound Unto Root presents The Golden Pith, a narrated horror anthology inspired by old-school horror radio dramas. It blends crooked tales with a lush, haunting score to examine the dark crevices of artistic ego. You can listen and download the project for free at bounduntoroot.org. That's B-O-U-N-D-U-N-T-O-R-O-O-T dot org. A limited edition box set is also available. Fancy. We got lots of interesting things to talk about before this episode rolls. You're talking about that sweet sounding horror narrative radio thing. And I get to talk a little bit about a special edition book written by A Quiet Place writers Scott Beck and Brian Woods. They have published their screenplay for Haunt, their horror hit produced by icon Eli Roth. While writing and directing their feature Haunt, Beck and Woods kept in-depth journals charting their experience, all while another script of theirs, you know, a little thing called A Quiet Place, was being produced by Paramount Pictures, stars Emily Blunt, John Krasinski, you know it, you've seen it. That movie became a giant global sensation, and Beckenwoods documented their journey through the wild landscape of failure, rejection, momentary success, rubbing elbows with their cinematic heroes, and weathering the absurdity of Hollywood. Also of note, in their journals in this book, uh, they kind of talk a little bit about their adaptation of Stephen King's The Boogeyman, which I think some of you listening oh. might uh, have little ears perking up about, uh, which is in post right now for 20th Century Studios. Uh, all profits for this book will be donated to St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. So, you know, it's for a good cause and should be a fascinating glimpse behind the scenes of uh, Mr. Scott Beck and Mr. Brian Woods. This book is now available wherever books are sold and you can purchase Haunt Screenplay and Filmmaker Diaries. Go do it. All right. And finally... I'm here with the Fango ad read. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and they are better than ever, with each issue bringing you over 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horror's past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head on over to Fangoria.com right now to learn more and to subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription. And with all that said, on with the show. Hi. My name is Stephen King. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vesby. And I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. Today's topic is Stephen King's short story, Grandma. And today's guest is an actor who you've seen in such things as... Godzilla, King of the Monsters, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Miss Marvel, Halt and Catch Fire, Logan Lucky, Richard Jewell, and of course, as everybody's favorite science teacher, Mr. Clark on Stranger Things. Everybody, please welcome Mr. Randy Havens to the KingCast stage. Welcome, Randy. Hello, Randy. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yes, yeah. of course. Yeah, and I knew uh, Logan Lucky was going to jump out at uh, at Scott there in that, oh, in that uh, love intro. Logan Lucky. No. I've, been on a, I've been on a Soderbergh kick lately. Re, re, uh, rewatching all the Soderberghs. Haven't gotten to Logie and Lucky yet, but I'm kind of saving that for the end game because it's one of my favorites. Yeah, you know, you start with the with the oldies, the goodies, the schizopolises. 
Uh-huh. Oh, we didn't go that far, but well, it started with like an oceans. My the, the uh, friends I'm living with right now, they have they're big time oceans uh, fans of that mm. trilogy, you know, and yeah, uh, waveheads. Yes, <laughs> as they're widely known. And yeah. <laughs> um, I like I, I came to realize when they they threw on, um, I guess, 13 the other night we were watching it and I realized like, holy shit, I've never actually seen this. And then I realized I couldn't really remember the second one, but I knew I had seen it at some point. So we ended up rewatching all of them. And then that led to, you know, uh, Solaris and they had never seen, uh, fuck, what is it called? What's the one I'm th- the informant. That's yes. I, I love the informant. So I show oh, you yeah. that. Um, yeah. And so we've been kind of working our way through, haven't gone back to like, you know, Schizopolis or, uh, what was that one called? Like bubble or some shit. Oh, with you know the, what I'm talking about? Doll heads. Yeah, it was like really early on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we haven't gone back that far yet, but uh, you haven't gone to the Criterion era of Soderbergh. Yeah, yeah, the struggling Soderbergh era. <laughs> you know, experiments. I mean, he had, he had some great like genre pieces too. There's one called The Underneath that's a great noir. Uh, mm-hmm. mm, I don't think I've seen that one. Um, I haven't either. Peter Gallagher always good for a screen presence. That Peter Gallagher. <laughs> yeah, he had he had a lot of like great like sort of B movies back in the day. Um, after Sex Lies and Videotape. Look, yeah, he's in House on Haunted Hill. I love House on Haunted Hill. Um, big ass eyebrows. <laughs> oh, you got those Gallagher eyebrows. Yeah, <laughs> those thick boys. Yes, I, I've noticed going through your filmography though. It's like you you have like all these like great little moments where you get to appear like in movies by these incredible directors. Like, I mean, you worked with Clint Eastwood for fuck's sake. You know, it's like. Are you like auditioning for for these things? Are you like seeking out these big directors? Or you just happen to get lucky of working with these like big time folks? It's 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 yeah. When I when I find out that there's going to be an opportunity, um, I'll basically just tell casting, tell my agents, I'm like, I'll mop the floor (laughs) (laughs) on this movie. So um, uh, just just get me in there. Yeah, I want to work with Mr. Godzilla. I've been a big fan. You know, I didn't actually get to meet. Godzilla. I met Mothra. She was great. Right. Really great. I've heard that about her. Yeah. uh, The, the, the G dog, you know, kind of untouchable. Mm. Stays in his trailer a lot. Kind of a, yeah. He is is a huge diva. Yeah. I can imagine that being the case. Well, I mean, he's been the biggest star in the world, like literally since the the fifties. So yeah. I mean, if you, if you have atomic breath and you can wipe out a city just by stomping on it, then uh, I wouldn't come out of my trailer either. You know, you're yeah. coming and, to me. And, and, you know, if your trailer is the size of a small town. Yes. Yes, of course. Yeah. Do the production's going to want to get the value out of it. I get it. I get it. Right. right. For sure. In the past, we went on a little boat tour together. We went we were on right. a boat together. Um, and that's where we met for the first time. Uh, it was like this floating Comic-Con thing. It was really weird. It's, and it's also weird looking back on it now, uh, post-COVID. Just like, one, you have a, a convention, which is like, super terrifying now in the age of covid and uh and then you have you have a a, you know being stuck on a a boat together you know which is also terrifying that's where like all the early signs of of the covid stuff uh i'm not surprised that the floating comic-con idea didn't uh take off but uh (laughs) especially you know what happened afterwards but that was actually pretty rad i remember having a lot of fun on that on that thing yeah, I had a blast too. Um, I'm lucky that I'm not famous enough to get be constantly harassed by people. Right. But if you were like super famous, that would be a nightmare. 
<laughs> there's nowhere to go because, because <laughs> i would yeah. i you know like there were definitely like people on that ship that like were following me around i'm right I'll here just, you can call me you, you can say my name that's fine <laughs> i don't even <laughs> i don't like you know uh, like regular comic-con i've been to that a few times and it's like the saving grace of being at it is that you know you can flee out those doors whenever you <laughs> right. want you know and there's going to be a lot of people out in the street and you're going to it's going to be a, a hike back to um you know, whatever hovel you are calling a hotel room while you're staying there for to fucking cover this thing. <laughs> but like it's um that I, I can't imagine removing that element from it, just being trapped right. on the, the boat the entire time, because that cabin's yeah. not going to be enough. I want to feel like yeah. I'm removed from the madness of all that shit. I think I got invited to that to cover it and was just like, mm, pass. <laughs> I'd never done a cruise. So I was like, you know uh, what? If I got to get a free cruise out of it. And the only thing I had to do was I, I they, they gave me two tasks uh, for my free cruise. Uh, and one task was to moderate a panel with the art director of stranger things actually, which I'm like, you know, I do that anyway, which was awesome. You know, this is, this must've been, it was season one, right? It was just right after season one, I think. So yeah, it was like, right. It was like uh, February, 2017, I think. Yeah. So it was like right after, like it was the holy shit, the surprise, you know, sucker punch uh, of a thing, you know, cause people forget like stranger things is an institution now, but like when it came out, it, they didn't even release like the first footage until like a, a month or two beforehand and nobody knew it was coming. And, mm-hmm. and it was like this giant surprise to genre fans, you know, Stephen King fans, Spielberg fans, you know, this thing that's like this loving, you know, homage of, of all the things that they, they love. And, uh, and so it was like this giant, like crazy surprise. It took, you know, for, it kind of took the world by, by, uh, by storm. And, <laughs> and so I was like all in to, to find out all about like, you know, cause, uh, the art director, I forgot his name, but he like showed the, the Duffers is, uh, uh, real that they made to sell it. The, what do they call it? It wasn't Nancy. Sizzle real. Yeah. It, what was the original title? Um, Oh, um, uh, Montauk 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 yeah and and so you know yeah it was just a sizzle reel of all these Amblin movies and stuff cut together as like a tone thing and to show like what the show could tonally feel like and it was it was super cool uh so I had to do that and then they asked me to uh one of the nights on the deck of the boat they showed Jaws and they asked me to introduce it and that was fucking hilarious because Everybody that was up there, that's where the pool was, that's where the bar was. There was about three or four people actually there to watch the movie. (laughs) And they had me introduce it. And it was one of those things where it was like trying to introduce, uh, you know, somebody at karaoke or something. Right. (laughs) Right. You know, where it's like everybody's just there trying to to give a speech to a tidal wave. (laughs) Right. And here I'm, you know, I like prepared. I like had this whole thing that I stole from Edgar Wright where he would, uh, uh, go to IMDb and pull the plot details. You know, those weird like plot keywords that IMDb uh, people users submit. And and so like I, I, I'd seen them do that at a couple of Q and A's. I'm like, that's really funny. So like I pulled like the more crazy ones, like, you know, naked woman swimming or, you know, that kind of, <laughs> you know, keywords that people had made. And I thought it was very super clever. Um, and I go up there and I'm, and I'm talking to like, all these fucking party people in the pool, because what, what uh, they didn't tell us on this cruise was 
that it wasn't exclusively Comic-Con people. I think they had right. trouble uh, uh, selling out or selling the boat. So they opened it up to just like cruise rats and stuff. And so there was yep. all these like, you know, <laughs> retirees on the boat. There was all these, you know, uh, fucking, you know, douchebag. It'd be crypto bros now, you know, <laughs> like douchebag 20 somethings just trying to get laid and have fun. And and uh, none of those people were there to watch Jaws. <laughs> so no, that it was, was delightful. The- the mix of people <laughs> right they're like no i just came for the discounted cruise <laughs> what are all these nerds doing here <laughs> and is that henry portrait of a serial killer at the bar <laughs> yeah yeah no it was uh it was bizarre but i i will say that uh, i had a lot of fun like we went to cozumel you know i did one of the excursions and and i went on a tour with uh, gail simone you know, for the the uh, comic book author and like went on a, a tour with her and a few of the people because you could pay like 65 bucks and then go like walk around the the Aztec ruins and look at all the iguanas and shit, you know, but that was fun. Like, I, I, I definitely enjoyed myself, but uh, I I think my my payment, you know, that I, I had to make wasn't cash. It was that crippling embarrassment of, of trying to talk to people who just wanted to uh, jump in the pool and, and uh, drink. Uh, while, while Jaws is playing. Yeah, and, and now you've got a cruise out of, out of the way. <laughs> yes. And you never, ever have to do that again. Nope. I um, Once you do that once, you, you kind of get it. Yeah, yeah, you're set. You're all yeah. set. I did a gig. I did improv and sketch comedy on a cruise ship for four months. Fuck. Uh, with the Second City. <laughs> and uh, yeah, let me tell you, after about two, three weeks, you're like, oh, this is a prison. I'm in prison. <laughs> yeah. I can't get out of here. I, I can't imagine. <laughs> I can't escape. The worst All these bars are exactly the same. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they're, they're like themed differently, but you're like, oh, all these bars are exactly the same. Like everything <laughs> on this ship is exactly the same. Nothing is different. The restaurants my, are, are a little different, but my expectation of like working on a cruise ship to any, any length or degree, you know, whatever your role might be on that ship would be that like getting that job would be really cool. And then it would like, as you're saying, it would be really cool for a few weeks. And then the drama would start setting in. People start fucking each other, you know, alliances start getting formed, you're clicks right. start being formed, you know, all this kind of shit. So like, I can imagine that going so far off the rails. Cause it's like, you know, again, like the, the same thing with comic-con, you know, I don't want to be at work all the time either. You know, you want to be able to leave. And so now you're, you 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 are fucking trapped. You're trapped on the ocean. There's nothing to be done about that. I'm fascinated by that as a as a thing you could do for a job because I would never under any circumstances go anywhere near it. I would lose my mind. Yeah, and we were lucky because we had what's called passenger status. Um, yeah. <laughs> so we could do anything that the passengers could do. Everyone else who worked on that ship did not have that. Um so they had to like they were working constantly. Sure. Um, so even like the entertainers on the ship, you know, they would have to go like dress up as the mascot. Like every ship had a little like chipmunk mascot or whatever. Oof. What? Why is this um, chipmunk associated with the ocean? Doesn't make sense. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know. It's Nor- Norwegian cruise lines. You know, <laughs> those Norwegians. Yeah. Who knows what those folks. The <laughs> yeah, they're always up to something. They really know? are. Um, They'll throw a chipmunk on anything. You just watch. So, yeah, the people that were constantly having to work, I was like, oh, my God, I couldn't even do that. And somehow we got out of, like, everything else. They were even, like, safety meetings that we were like, oh, we were supposed <laughs> to do that? We were like, whoops. 
Thank God there wasn't an emergency because we would be no help whatsoever. It says here on the itinerary that uh, about four days ago, there was a meeting called Whatever You Do, Don't Do This, Important, <laughs> All uh, Attendance Mandatory. We weren't even invited to that. What was the thing? And they're like, if you were worried about that, you would have come to the meeting, wouldn't you? That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I will say that uh, instead of like, you know, the trade cigarettes or Twinkies or whatever in prison, instead of that, it was movies. Everybody had a hard drive. Mm. Oh, nice. And you would just come, you would just go to somebody else's cabin and you would be like, what do you got? It's like, oh, I've got every season of Deadwood. And it's like, give it to me. I need like, <laughs> I, I need the next four days of my life to be spent doing something. Ooh. <laughs> did did the long form stuff carry more uh, value than than say, oh, I, I got the complete Mel Brooks collection here? Yeah, you definitely wanted to just like dive into something. Um, that was 2011, I think. So that was like just I think just before binge watching became a thing, like we were all binge watching. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So by the time like, you know, Netflix started coming around and binge watching became this huge thing. I was like, oh, I've been doing this. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, or at least I had my trial by fire of just spending yeah. days at a time in my dark room, just like in my bed, just watching television shows for 12 hours a day. <laughs> yeah. Now, with the advent of Netflix, the entire world can enjoy the experience of being trapped in a cabin in an ocean liner with no escape. Yes. Do you love dark depression? (laughs) (laughs) You want every season of Dynasty? Someone on this fucking ship has it. Uh, Well, this is a good transition, I think, to... Is it? To... No, 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 because we're talking about Netflix. We got to talk about Stranger Things before we move on to Stephen King, because they're kind of intertwined uh i won't i won't dwell on stranger things but uh that's certainly where i noticed your work for the first time um and you know mr clark especially in those first couple of seasons are is like super crucial to the to the goings-on and hawkings and uh so i think we should touch on that and you i i've now discovered that you are fairly died in the wool stephen king fan so let's get your origin story first and then we can transition into how that uh melded with say the duffers and everything on on the stranger things so can you tell us what your stephen king origin story is yeah so my um father uh lived with a woman for a long time um she was basically his wife they just never got married and she was just she had like every stephen king book and so um when i would come to visit my dad uh i lived with my mom and I'd come to visit my dad. And so when I came to visit my dad, like we would always just like borrow her like Stephen King books. I know the first two I read were the short story books. So it was Night Shift and Skeleton Crew. And I, I don't know in which order. I think Skeleton Crew was probably first. How old are you at this time? Like 11. <laughs> what caused you to pick them up? Were you reading otherwise? Uh, I, I think my, maybe my brother. My brother's a couple years older than me. I think maybe he was reading one. And so I was like, I'll, yeah, I'll, right on. I'll read one. Well, I only ask because a lot of people, it's like, oh, the covers, you know, I saw the covers and I was like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, you know, I think like, it was probably skeleton. <laughs> I was like, ooh, skeletons <laughs> sound scary. Skeletons are scary, right? Okay, so you weren't in the advanced classes. You're I in, know them you're, from you're Halloween. Like, <laughs> <laughs> They're spooky. Yeah, you don't, you don't mess with skeletons. So, yeah, and it was... Uh, you know, I think that introduction to uh, to Stephen King, sort of the short form Stephen King. Um, and then from there, obviously, just like fell into the, you know, the deep end of the pool and was just like 
obsessively just reading everything I could get my hands on by him. No, and I spent like a whole summer with uh, the stand. Yeah. Was that your first novel that you you dug into after the short stories? Or oh, the stand? You... Oh, God, no. Because um, <laughs> that was, so, that you know, that was so thick. Like, I mean, it's like Bible level thick. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Toe breaker. Um, yeah. If you... Yeah. And I was like, you know, I just see the like just sheer girth of that and go like, I can't take all that inside me. Um, <laughs> is, is that what 11 year old you thought about uh, Stephen King books? After I read it, ah, thought a lot about girth. <laughs> yes. Uh, a, lot no, of ways, I, a lot of ways we can read into that one. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> That's yeah. fun. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to assume I'm gonna turtle, the not, not the sewer scene. Yeah. Well, you know, who knows? <laughs> I, yeah. I'm trying to think of what the, what the first, novel was something that wasn't uh phone book sized it actually might have been it <laughs> yeah you're gonna tread lightly into those waters not the stand but for sure it well or i think gonna... like it was more accessible and that it's about an evil clown right right for sure like this this the stand is yeah. about um a pandemic which you know at the time boring <laughs> yes um <laughs> But, you know, once you start reading it, it's like, oh, wow, this is this is like, you know, what a what a horrific almost like selection of stories. Right. Because the beginning of the stand is is really almost like short stories. Right. Because you have all these little stories of these characters mm-hmm. who you think you're going to follow throughout the book. Right. And then they die immediately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you have all these like n- nice little sort of vignettes and and whatnot of like characters where it's like, oh, and this person survived the virus. And then they like fell into a well. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah, that book's person... filled with stuff like that. Like uh, the famous yeah. example is is Nick Andros, who is like clearly built to be the protagonist of this story. You know, this is going to be the the hero, the lead. You know, the pure of heart. You know, knight of the white. You know, this is the guy that's fighting for for the good. You know, he's he's deaf, but he's got this you know, this pure spirit and, uh, and he's going to challenge Randall flag. And then, you know, halfway through he gets blown up and you're like, well, what the fuck's going to happen now? Now we got the, the, the junkie asshole rock star, you know, we got, yeah, you know, the old professor. You're right. It's like, well, you know, holy shit, what's going to happen now? Yeah. That, that, that I don't think people kind of give credit to the stand for what, um, uh, for what it does narratively, like it, it is, it is, it changes things up in in ways that you're not used to in popular fiction, for sure. Yeah. So that that was what got you hooked. Have you have you kept up with King? Are you still reading his new stuff as it comes out? Or no, um, uh, no, I'm not. But uh, uh, yeah, I'm just not. I'm just not as much of a reader nowadays as um, uh, as I was. I got mm-hmm. the same problem. What's your what's your, what do you think is at the root of yours? Is too much working? Why? Yeah, because I do. Because I read for my job. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Um, and it's just like, oh yeah, I have to read scripts and I have to like memorize scripts, and it's just like, um, you know, sitting down with a with a book is like it feels like work to me. Mm. Yeah. Um, whereas like, you know, I can like watch a movie, watch a TV show, and it's like, okay, well, this is kind of work because it is, you know, you know, research. Uh, basically, everything I watch is research in, in some way or another. Um, but it doesn't feel like work to me, but it still counts like mentally. So I know what you mean. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, when the, when you have that free time to right. just fuck around with, you want to, what do you do? You play video games, you, uh, you video throw games a frisbee. And movies, what do you do? Yeah. 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 Nice. Ultimate Frisbee. Nice. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
uh, Jim Cotta. It's yes. Jim Cotta dance fighting. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm well familiar well, with the the world of Parmistan and their uh, <laughs> their their Jim Cotta annual Olympics. You know, I, I competed once. But um, what kind of games are you playing uh, right now? I'm uh, Warzone 2.0. Word. Oh, word. Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 getting murdered by nine year olds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't have anything to uh, follow up with you on this one because I'm a this is a battlefield household, unfortunately. But wow, it's a we all it really is a one or the other. We have yeah. to coexist, you know. It's it really just, is a one or the other. I was super hardcore into Call of Duty when it first came out, and I was good. Like maybe it was just because I was like in my twenties, you know, so my reflexes were sharp. But like I remember in that <laughs> for that very first, uh, like first two the the World War Two ones, right? Where I'm just like, oh shit, I'm like really good at the multiplayer here. I guess I'm just good at multiplayer because I was good at, at uh, the first Halo multiplayer and all this stuff. I'm like, I'm just born and bred for this baby. And then I, <laughs> from the age of like twenty three on, uh, I just get wrecked in in anything multiplayer to the point where. Uh, I just can't play it or else I'm in danger of uh, smashing my controller on the ground. And that them shits are expensive. So, so uh, yeah, I can't, I can't go there. But I do play Overwatch, which is kind of the same mm. the same problem, you know, where if you take it too seriously and too personally, you're, you're going to, you know, pop something in your brain. Yeah, I just, you know, sit in my 0.74 KD and just go like, you know what? I'm just not good. <laughs> I'm just going to have fun trying to ruin somebody yeah, else's game. That's all exactly. I'm, I'm just get, like, there's a, there's a guy that runs around with a riot shield. It's just my mission to get that guy. Everybody <laughs> else can kill me, but I'm going to get the guy with a riot shield. <laughs> and yet still a more attractive proposition than cracking a book after you've been reading all day. Like, <laughs> exactly. I, I want to murder people. Yeah, yes. I don't uh, want to look at words. <clears throat> a, a really close friend of mine. She's a, a very successful author. And, um, uh, is constantly working, just kind of like juggling projects, that kind of shit. But she's also reading constantly and can blow through like multiple books in a day. Like it's it's fucking crazy. And she's always giving me a hard time about like not reading more. And I'm like, this just isn't how I relax. You know, it's just I, I think that's what it is. And I think yeah. that's what we're kind of getting at here. It's not that we don't like reading or don't see the value in it, because I certainly do. I mean, Jesus Christ, we built a whole show around, you know, uh, author worship basically yeah you know but like it just feels to me like there's never been a better time to be more selfish with your free time you know Mm. we're all out here fucking hustling trying to get everything you know make all the bills get paid and you know do what we got to do so kind of feel like you know if the way you unwind is throwing a frisbee around a yard or you know uh chasing neighborhood kids around with a grotesque mask on or you know, maybe just sitting down with a video game and getting smoked by fucking 11 year olds. You know, that's that's up to you, man. You know, no. I'm not here to cast aspersions like my friend does on me. <laughs> I think you nailed it, though, because that's I used to use reading as that relaxing escape. That's why I fell into the worlds of Stephen King and, and Crichton and Ray Bradbury and stuff as a middle and high schooler. Um that was my, my thing. I spent my summers, like I look forward to summers cause I knew I'd get to read more, you know, that, that was, that was the kind of nerd I was, right. I wasn't like excited for summer cause man, I'm going to go to the the beach. I'm going to go swim in, in the lakes and 
spend all days with my friends. It's just like, yeah, I'd seen my friends on the weekends or whatever, but like just knowing I could sleep in and leisurely wake up and crack open nightmares and dreamscapes, you know, and pack in another like two or three stories and, you know, (laughs) into that massive tome. And, you know, I don't know that that was really appealing to me. And now I have the stack of books that I really am desperate to actually read. And I'm excited to, to get to. And I just, the only time I, I tend to find to read is on flights now. Like that's where, like I can just disconnect where there isn't a conversation going on in, in mm-hmm. my phone that I look up from and realize that, you know, this text thread I'm in has kept me occupied for 45 minutes. You know, it's like, <clears throat> right. you know, I don't know. There, there's just something, something's changed. I don't know if it's an adult thing. I don't know if it's a technology thing, but something's changed in the way that, that I consume books. And, and I probably need to, to work on like actively work on it and not just keep going on and going, I'll find time later. You know, I probably need to just force myself to, to do it. Maybe I'll, I'll uh, read before bed. And that's what I, I used to do. Let's move on to grandma. I'm excited to talk about this one. This is one of my favorite Mm. King uh, short stories. Randy, why'd you pick this one? Uh, When Eric asked me to be in the show, I was like, I was like, okay, cool. And so I was like, what, Mm -hmm. Do you what excited? would I read? And it, and it really was like a, um, I, I spent so much time just like going like, what should I do? What should I read? What should I read? For some reason, like that's the word grandma just kind of like popped out to me. And I was like, mm. right. I remember being so freaked out by this story when I first read it. Yeah. Um, And like, there are things about this story that have stuck with me. Like before I even reread it for the podcast, I, was like oh yeah and there's that and there's like the hand and there's like <laughs> yeah. the flesh and i remember the vanity mirror um mm. and the idea that like that creeping sense of dread throughout this whole story that really just builds to that fever pitch at the very end and it really like i mean like it's just like dread throughout yeah. just mm-hmm. growing 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 and then it's only like the final two pages, I think, where it really starts, where things just really go off. Throw the mask off and shit. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, <clears throat> I think the uh, that that sense of dread that you're talking about is, you know, it's something we've seen King do well before, certainly in other stories. But this is a real concentrated dose of it, and it's also very evenly paced. You know, the the pacing on this short story is phenomenal. The mm. way he just keeps like kind of like every couple of pages, he just turns the crank once mm-hmm. you know what i mean and then like a couple pages later turns it again and like it just keeps going like that where you're you're getting more and more worked up reading it like what the fuck is gonna happen with this kid's grandma man like let's, <laughs> what, what is this dude that's my number one favorite thing about it and the second thing is is that it perfectly captures how terrified i was of my own grandmother yeah <laughs> when right. when i was that age um and we can talk about that more in a minute. But for anyone who hasn't read it, would you be willing to lay out the, you know, the the basic beats from this story for us? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, uh, it is the story of George, um, who is, uh, I think, 11. Mm-hmm. Um, George's older brother is hurt in a baseball game. Um, and so his mom has to leave George with his grandma. Mm, um, yes, for the afternoons uh, while George gets his or while George's brother gets his um, leg worked leg on put in a cast or whatever. Yeah. So mom has to go away to the hospital. She has to rush away to the hospital. And she's like, George, take care of your grandma. So George is left alone in the house with grandma. And throughout the story, 
uh, it's I feel as if this information is being revealed to George because he's having these memories and then all the th- like yeah. things are clicking in the memories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. the reason these things are clicking is I think like the, the spirit of grandma is going, I want you to know what's about to happen to you. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Do you want that? Or you want the, like the whole thing? Uh, that's no, a good think, starting point. I, I mean, I mean, <laughs> that's the, yeah, that's the gist. It's a kid. He's in, a, in, in this house. It's out in the middle of nowhere with his grandmother. Uh, which was something that on on this reread, I, d- I didn't recall from previous reads that, you know, like where the mom pulls out from the driveway. And it's uh-huh. like, well, and then she had to go down X number of miles a lane before she actually hit tar. And then it was another 19 miles to town. Like, yeah. I feel like when I've read this story in the past or even when they adapted it for was it for the new Twilight Zone or was it amazing? Yeah, it was stories? the 80s Twilight Zone. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Like in that version, I feel like it was just in a neighborhood. And yeah. and in my mind, that's always where the story is taking place. And on this read, I was kind of struck by that little detail that, OK, so it, it had never occurred to me before while reading it. Like, well, why didn't you just run to the neighbor's house? Because then there'd be no fucking story. But <laughs> right. Well, but there are neighbors. Yes, but like because, not in a well populated. I mean, it's not a well populated neighborhood. Is yeah, it I'm just it, you know? it feels like there's just like a few a few because they all share a phone line. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. Which I was a little confused yeah, about. And I was like, I, what year does this take place? Because like, there's like, si- he said there's like six people and they all have to share a phone line. So when you have to make a call, if you pick up the phone and somebody else is like having a conversation, you got to go, hey, get off the phone. I have to call the doctor. Or yeah, I don't I don't understand that either. And I was really hoping that um, uh, Randy, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not as I, I hadn't met you or spoken to you before this. So, I'm, you know, I've seen a lot of the stuff that you've been in, but we've. We've never talked, and uh, I didn't. I couldn't really guess it. I, I didn't really have a guess what your age might be, but I assumed it was maybe a little older than I was. And I was hoping that maybe you or or even Vespi, if, mm. if Vespi knew about this, would have uh, some sort of explanation about this phone line business because that caught my eye too. Like, mm. how the fuck are you getting anything accomplished if you're on like a party <laughs> line with everyone like all the time? Mm. I, you know, are you then are you, are you just picking up and saying, "Hey, everyone off the line," and also, operator, connect me to so and so. And is there an operator just hanging on, hanging out I, there all the time? Like, how does this work? I don't know for sure, but my guess is that this is between because I'm I was born in '81, so I'm an '80s baby, and I remember party lines, but I don't think we ever had one. Like, but I think that was like right on the edge of when party lines were still a thing. But I also kind of grew up in suburban areas. I never really grew up in the in rural areas, which I guess maybe that was more common. But yeah, I think that this is probably in that sweet spot between like the 1930s where you had to connect to the operator boards, you know, like in all the noir movies and shit, you know, when num- phone numbers were like, had like Dakota 4792 right. or whatever, you know, that, that that's what phone numbers were. Uh, so I think it was like post that era, but like pre just everybody had, you know, a Ma Bell, you know, line to their house. This is Yeah, I, I wonder if it is like a kind of a country thing because um, they have like the story, they have a traditional, there's a traditional seven digit phone number that he, that's written in the story. Sure. Mm. Yeah. For the doctor. like the doctor's number. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, so at least we know like, okay, if, if he gets these other people to hang up that he can like, you know, dial a number and he doesn't have to, you know, Kind of like Westwood one. <laughs> You're right. This is the I, I 
you know, the the idea of this, and, and we're going to move on for this. I'm, I, I don't want to belabor the point. But the <laughs> idea, let's talk about phones. Well, the fucking, okay, <laughs> let's do it. The idea of like, ha, like picking up a phone, right. and now here's, you hear someone, I think like in the story, and this is like verbatim almost, like, it's like, and I told Mabel, I says to Mabel, I says, and I'm like, what the, f- <laughs> what purpose could this possibly serve like you know why would anyone want to be on a line where anyone could pick up in the like let's say it's the zip code could pick up and listen to whatever's going on this is the same thing as if like you could go into your bathroom and lift up the toilet and immediately have access to the sewer line that connects like every other house in the area like i don't want to deal with anyone else's shit and i assume they don't want to deal with mine it's Mm. it's a crazy crazy thing that that existed at some point I can't mm-hmm. wrap my head around it. Yeah, I doubt that it was the choice of the people involved going, you know what? This is what I'd prefer <laughs> to do. No, of course I not. Think it was I a mean, forced, but like, why would thing you... where there was just like a single line going into one like area of where there's only like six houses or something? You know, they, I think that that was the, or it could just be an authorly bullshit thing that he used to throw in that wasn't a common thing even at that point. And uh, it was just something that could be a barricade between uh, this kid and the ability That's to fair. get help. That's fair. You know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah it, was, it was, it was so strange to me because like at first I'm like, I thought it was someone who was talking to his grandma. Mm. Um, <laughs> and then they sort of like, then she's like on the phone, like in her bedroom or whatever. And she's right. talking to the, Oh, I see. I see. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and, and then, you know, as the story goes on, I'm like, oh, no, this, these are like the neighbors. Right. The closest yeah, I, thing I ever experienced to this was like growing up in our house. My parents could fi- pick up a phone in another room if I was on the phone. Right. Like, talking to somebody. And like even that blows my mind now that that would be a thing that we all agreed to. You know, <laughs> like someone could just hop into your phone call at any time. It's the sense of this. I guess it's, this is like a privacy thing. You know, the the sense of privacy and ownership of, you know, this is my phone line. Like, yeah. it's, uh, it's fucking it. I, I guess in the end, it's just wild. The the changes that technology goes through over the years. Yeah. And yeah, if there's uh, anybody I, under the age of 25 listening to this, they're going to think we're making all this shit up. But it, it absolutely was the case that like I remember actually spying in on my uh uh, some of my like parents calls when I was a kid and I like had this technique of, of being able to lift the receiver <laughs> and sneak a finger under to hold the button down and then like have Indiana the receiver. Jones, like fucking yeah. with the, the bag of sand. Yes. And so I'd have my finger on the button that would like, and I would just slowly let up on the button. So there wasn't like an audible click, you know? Uh, Cause there's a very distinct sound of, of picking up a, a, an old landline phone like if you just do it casually, you know, there's there's a very specific sound that you could you could hear. And I wasn't always successful with it, but uh, but it became a little bit of a game. Uh, and then there is, of course, if we wanted to keep down this road and I do not. But there there is, of course, the the whole era where uh, your Internet was connected to your phone line. So uh, if anybody if you had an incoming call, uh, sometimes I would knock you off the Internet if, if somebody picked up the phone, uh, <laughs> uh, another phone in the house while you were on the Internet, it would knock you off the Internet. So as much as we can look back at the archaic uh, idea of a, of a party line, we also had our own version of that kind of as, uh, as we were growing up. So something that I want to touch on in this story is it's really, you know, for a horror fan reading this now, 
uh, either rereading it or reading it for the first time, there's so many parallels to Hereditary here. Oh this yeah, is for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Like Stephen King's Hereditary. And um, to the point where it's essentially like the grandmother, instead of uh, uh, trying to bring, you know, some, some trickster demon uh, in into the world and put it in the body of of uh her grandson uh which is the hereditary plot line it's it's more about her she's like it's revealed over time that the grandmother is obviously a witch and she did some like dark magic shit to conceive and um and uh and that now that she's dying she's wanting to put her soul into her grandson and, uh, you know, much like Hereditary, she fucking succeeds. And that to me is the creepiest part. Like people give Stephen King shit a lot for for uh, fumbling his endings. Uh, but this rem- reminds me a little bit of Revival where he, it's just he nails the ending on this. Right. One, right. Where like you you read this one and just it, it's not so much that, oh, you know, there's that creepy, you know, very Twilight Zone-ish. Uh, Tales from the Cryptish ending where the mom comes back and the after this horrific, you know, cat and mouse game where the the hag like grandmother is chasing the kid around and and he's like giving this advice to, you know, you need to tell her to lie down and Hagar's name or whatever the fuck, you know, the the, the aunt on the phone tells her to do tells him to do uh, and (laughs) whatever all this crazy thing. It builds this thing and then blink, you know, it cuts and the mother comes back and the kid's just fine at the table. Uh, and then it's, you know, revealed that he's like having these thoughts. It's like, ooh, I'm going to I can't wait to torture my brother now. And I can't wait. He has all these evil thoughts of his grandmother. Uh, it, it's not the fact that he has that like quick moment where you go, oh, my God, you know, she won. It's the fact that he like continues on just a step past and he's like sitting on the bed or whatever. And he's just like, yes, like this, I, I've won. And now I'm plotting all the evil that I'm going to do. I don't know. There's just something about that little coda that he has there that always stuck with me that's like really gets under your skin yeah it's very nice and it's like that the grandma like gets his memories as well yeah because it is like oh if he if he tries to give me the like the little arm burn thing or he gets on top of me and like you know holds my shoulders down and like taps on my forehead he does that shit i'll let him but then at night he's mine (laughs) yep (laughs) it's like oh wow and and grandma's grandma's very vengeful. Oh yeah, uh, seems grandma, like a real pain in the ass. Yeah, frankly. grandma killed one of her children when he was fourteen because he pissed her off. Mm. Yeah, uh, she like you know cursed him with um, per- peritonitis. I don't I don't know what that is, but yeah, um, I don't either. Uh, I just say lupus. I don't know what lupus is either, but we, we can. You know. Lupus is an autoimmune disorder. Okay, great. It turns you into a werewolf, I think. Uh, turns you into a werewolf. You get really hairy. Um, yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, so she's killed one of her children already. Obviously, at the end, she kills the aunt who's trying to tell George how to, like, make grandma stop. Right. Um, and I her think plan. that she breaks the brother's leg. I think oh, that you her think, plan you think is she to... cursed, she, like, somehow cursed it and made it happen to be alone with the kid? Oh, 100%. Right. Yeah, that this is all this is all her plan is to get him alone so that she can like go do the transition like, or whatever the yeah, fuck it exactly. is. Right. In the mom the, the great thing about this too is that, that all the family seems to be aware that this is a possibility because even the mom uh if I remember the story correctly the mom is like when she finds out that the kid says oh grandma died uh you know while you were gone because she was sickly and you know kind of bedridden or whatever. 
Um, and the, the mom's initial reaction was like, are you sure that's all that's all that happened? Right. So she fucking knew and her, of course the aunt like knew the right thing. You know, I don't, all that little world building that's done is just done so effortlessly and the reveal of information, um, which goes back to what you're saying about like the ratcheting of tension, Scott, um, you know, where it's every couple of pages, you get this new, like little insight of this memory unlocks of these conversations between those family members that like kind of knew what, what their mom was, you know, and that, uh, she had access to like these dark tomes, these dark magic books and stuff. And, uh, and all this, I don't know. There's, there is, there's an economy of information reveal in the story that is so fun to read and just uh it kind of makes for a perfect you know uh even though the adaptation wasn't i i would say it wasn't great uh it makes for kind of a perfect like uh twilight zone kind of episode um and i think that somebody could readapt it now i don't know have you did you ever see that uh randy do you ever see the the harlan ellison adaptation in the uh in the 80s no, I had no idea that there that there even was an adaptation. So, yeah, um, Baird yeah, Oliver I... from Neverending Story uh, plays. Oh wow! Plays the uh, uh, plays George, and uh, I think George Piper Went Lo- plays Grandma. I believe. <laughs> yeah, looks like George Went. Piper Laurie voices Grandma in in the thing. Nice. So it's got this great like uh, cast, and and uh, it's not too well uh, executed. I don't think it, it's very like mid to late eighties where, you know, it looked like it was shot on, on cutting edge video technology at the time, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, it doesn't hold up very well, but, um, and there's also an adaptation that was done fairly recently, a feature adaptation that I still have never made it all the way through called mercy with, uh, the kid from super eight and the kid from, uh, that's, uh, Rick Grimes, son and walking dead. Wait, Carl. Kid from super eight. You mean Aaron Taylor Johnson? No. Uh, oh, not. I'm thinking of Kickass. Super yes. Eight. The JJ. I don't. I have yeah. no idea how I crossed those wires. <laughs> yeah, it's just like never mind. Super Eight. Yeah. L Fanning. No. Um. No, it was just whoever the lead kid was in Super Eight. I forgot his name. Um. And they were in it, and I've tried to watch it like twice, and I get like 20 minutes in, and I just go, well, I'm I'm bored, and then I, I peace out. Uh, but there is something that I feel like there's a good adaptation in the story. You, you know, just you get somebody in there to really play up the gothic element. Yeah. To it, you know, that that trapped, that claustrophobic, you know, get Vincenzo Natale on this, right? Make, make it a cube sitch, you know, where you're you're just claustrophobic in this house, you know? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, Keto, Keto adapting it now, it would be just like all the all the kind of witchy elements of it would have to. You know, you've got to see the whole thing through the kid's eyes. So it's got to be just baffling to to him. You know? Right. Uh, you got to roll that information out in like a nonlinear manner, I think, to yeah. sort of really sell the confusion that, you know, you would feel in in that. Uh, I don't know, in that headspace. And I think that that sort of goes back to what I touched on earlier about like this inherent fear that I had uh, of old people when right. I was a kid. You know, when I would see old people on TV, they were frequently uh, scolds or they were terrifying in some way, like the preacher from Poltergeist 2 mm. or the grandma from Grandma or Large Marge from Pee Wee's Big Adventure. You know, these people are always doing weird shit with their faces. They're up to no good. And then I, I had a grandmother. I had a grandmother and a grandfather 
I guess I won't identify which parent side this was in case any of them ever, either of them ever hears this, but uh, <laughs> just scared the ever loving shit out of me. There's, there's a part in the book or excuse me, in the story where he's talking about like the way the, the skin fell off her arms. Mm-hmm. And I had like a, mm-hmm. I have a visceral reaction to that every time I read it, because yeah. I know exactly what he's fucking talking about. It's like, once you get to a certain age and when I, and I'm not, to be clear, I'm not shit talking old people here. We're all going to get there eventually. And it's going to it's it's gross for all of us. But like, you know, like if you're if your muscles have atrophied and your your you know, your flesh just starts like dangling off your your uh, skeleton. Like right. it's to a child. That's the, the visual of that, or at least to me, was was mortifying. Like, I didn't know what to do with that. It felt like, isn't she sick? Isn't there something we should be doing about this? Like, this looks irregular. I don't know. My no one else I know arms look like that, you know, and I remember that being like a really. I don't know, like not a traumatic thing, because I don't think, you know, it fucked me up for any amount of years, but it was just like a thing I didn't want to be in a room with that sort of thing. And then my grandfather was just silent all the time. He would like sit in the corner in a chair and just kind of (laughs) stare. And later Uh I found out he was like a rampaging alcoholic, like. You know, not like violently. He was just like, chances are that man was like blackout drunk the entire time I knew him. And I just had no fucking idea. He would just like mutter things from time to time and be uh-huh. red. Um, uh, but yeah, I didn't like visiting that house. And uh, this this story really captures that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I when I mentioned this earlier, uh, uh, Randy, you were you were saying you sort of knew what I was talking about. Did you have a similar situation in your childhood? Oh yeah, no. There's you know there's the the, the freaky thing about being young and full of life. <laughs> when you see someone who's close to death, sure. You know, there's something in it, there's something in your mind that goes, oh, that knows <laughs> this is going to happen to me, right? Uh-huh. And so it's your taste of mortality, right? It's, mm. it's like the first time that you get it, and so it's so freaky. And obviously, yes, the skin folds, right? The Whiskers you know, as, weird as you grow older, you know, if your diet's not great or whatever, you know, you, you yeah, you start to get the gross fleshiness, right? Right. Um, right. Old people who take their teeth out to make funny faces, like it's it's disgusting, like a toothless <laughs> maw. Um, the smell, the yes. smell of an old person, like yeah. that, that smell of impending death. Um, <laughs> and I, and 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 in this one, he he really ups the disgusting you know, nature because it's like, oh yeah. And she's like shitting herself. Um, she has diapers and like rubber pants. Um, at one point he like, uh, gets a bloody nose and goes over and gets a rag. That's one of her old diapers that I'm sure has been washed. but I'm like, what you guys use her old diapers as like rags. (laughs) This is wrong. (laughs) They're very environmentally conscious. They really are. Um, and so I mean, they're sharing a phone line. They may as well be sharing diapers. Yeah, there you go. There you go. You might as well use somebody else's diaper to wipe your face. <laughs> Good times. Um, as you do. No. It's an so, exfoliant yeah, think, is, is what I understand. Yeah, it's just it's just it's, it's you know, the, the idea of like. The level of disgust of like being trapped in the in the house with like this dying thing, because, you know, like. It cl- clearly, like in the story, she's not really human anymore. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, she's like a vessel, like with just this, this evil thing inside of her that's just begging to get out. 
Yeah, and she's barely even there. Um, mm-hmm. Like, all she has left are these, like, you know, they talk about, like, the bad spells. I think one of my favorite lines is, like, oh, that is a bad spell. As she's, like, casting a spell. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, like, Grandma will have her bad spells, which is, like, um, you know, at the beginning of the story, it's like, oh, she's, like, you know, has dementia and she's, like, <laughs> right. you know, um, spouting nonsense. And then as you, as as the story goes on, you're like, oh, no, she's legitimately, like, casting a spell. Like, um, when she has one of her bad spells, something terrible happens in the town. Like, she wrecks the cemetery, right? She, like, destroys mm. the cemetery with, like, a tornado or something. Um, and right. people are like, oh, it was like, you know, someone went in there and desecrated the 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 uh the graveyard Mm. Um, but grandma actually did it you know by like saying words um and the mom apparently is the one who can control her the best right like all the all the other siblings were like no 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 you're first of all like your husband's dead so you go take care of (laughs) grandma (laughs) second of all um you're the one who can like stop her when she starts you know spouting it goes from like right so grandma (laughs) all, all she has left sort of is like this the casting of spells right and then when she gets into george she's like oh right i can think again yeah um oh this is fun wow i forgot i forgot what this was like um and so not only does she have like the the power that she had as as like this you know kind of husk um but now she gets to <laughs> think again as well yeah and you definitely get that sense that rejuvenated sense that like delight in in uh youth again you know like oh my god i have my youth i have you know i have everything in in front of me and just just the contentedness kind of comes through of like ah job well done yay me i did this and now now that asshole you know brother of mine slash grandson of mine is is going to pay for for all the shit that he does to me would you if you had the ability to do to do this would you get to a certain age and this is almost like a uh it's like a black mirror question like would you transfer your consciousness to somebody else like would you do that at a certain age or do you just want to get old and get to a certain age and then just it's it's over and you're done you're done with with living what do you think jesus life lasts too long already you know (laughs) i'm like i want to wrap it up now what are you talking about (laughs) like like, when is it over can you imagine like come on like who in their right mind right now would be like, no, I think I want to see more of this. I right. want to see what the next hundred are like, because because uh-huh. <laughs> it can't be it's not headed in a good direction. Right. Like. Why? Why on earth? I I, I can't even imagine having uh, I shouldn't say this because maybe some of our listeners have done, done this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I can't even imagine having kids right now. Yeah. You know, I would be so terrified to have a to to have a kid right now for this exact reason. Like, mm. Under no circumstances do I want to show, sign up for a double shift. <laughs> Welcome yeah, to the world, do you, do you, son. Uh, don't don't buy coastal property. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Right? Yeah. How do you prepare a, a child for what comes next? You just be like, oh, look, dude, it's gotten really bad. <laughs> Things uh, have gotten really bad, and I have no idea how much worse they're going mm-hmm. to get. <laughs> there are more Nazis now than there yeah. has been in, in 60 years. I'm sure that that's not a... a concerning thing that you should worry about <laughs> right it's just like historically i know the bad things are coming i just don't know exactly what but uh, <laughs> if, I, if i've learned anything from the history books it's not gonna be great <laughs> and that's why at four years old i have sat you down 
to tell you that, <laughs> that, that you're going to be taking care of me later in life. And that's the only reason we had you. So, uh, you know, eat your vegetables, get healthy. <laughs> Cause I'm not. So I want to circle back, uh, real quick to, um, my interaction with the Duffer brothers quickly turned into a conversation about Steven Spielberg and Stephen King. Like I, I've, I've interacted with them once had a great interview with them, you know, a few years back when I think they were doing like an Emmy push for season three. So I have to imagine that you got along super well with those, uh, with those guys, given your King background. Cause they like, I could tell just over the phone that they like instantly perked up when I was just like, yeah. And temple of doom rules. And, and I love Stephen King. And they're like, Oh, let's talk about Stephen King. You know, they got real excited about that stuff. So uh, uh, I, I don't want to dwell on the stranger thingsness of, of it all, but I would be remiss to have you on the show and not talk about that since King is such a huge influence on that show. Yeah, that was um, one of the first things when I read the first uh, three scripts. This is before I even had the job. Like I was just basically like doing an extended audition with them. Um, uh, Living with them in character, normal uh, shit. <laughs> Essentially, well, they had me come to do the table read and they were like, read the first, you know, we were going to read the first three scripts at the table read. So come in and read and like the Netflix execs are going to be there. So this is kind of your... Um, they had had a, they had a Mr. Clark before I got there. Mm. Oh, no the shit. Mr., the Mr. Clark, that actor didn't work out. Um, and so they were like, killed a guy in the parking lot, I bet. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I had been hired and fired um, uh, already. <laughs> like I, They cast me. and You then, were going to play 11. Yeah. yeah. Well, they'd cast me as a, uh, in a in a part that had gotten cut during pre-production. Mm. So they cast me and then like a week later or two weeks later, they were like, never mind. And then a week after that, they were like, hey, come in and read for this other part at the table read. What goes on in your head during that conversation? Because a little bit of you has got to be kind of like, fuck that. You already let me go. But on the other hand, you want the job, right? Yeah. I well, uh, Yeah, there was less like I had already gotten over the heartbreak. Of <laughs> right, <laughs> not having a a gig, um, and at this point, like I I knew nothing about the show. Right. It didn't even have right. a title at the at that point. Uh, I had no idea who was in it, um, or or anything about it, and I'd only read a few scenes, but the scenes were good, and I liked I liked what I was reading, and all I was like, oh, this is recurring, great. I love having a roof over my head and being able to afford food to eat. <laughs> right, um, right, right, right. And so, you know, they were just giving me another opportunity to um, be able to afford food and electricity. Always good. Good to have. Uh, so I'm like, yeah, sign me up. Um, and I had a, I had a sneaking suspicion. I was like, if they're bringing me in for the table read to read for this, then they already like me. Mm. Um, yeah. So I think I'm good. And obviously, like, as an actor, you know, if people keep bringing you in, then you're probably going to get hired. Right. Yeah. Like even if even if you're coming in or reading for different parts, it means they like you. Mm. Right. Um, and so yeah, I'm it's like, the easiest thing in the world to just say, "Don't show up." Yeah. We don't. No, thank you. We don't need you for this. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so uh, when I got those first three scripts, I was like, "Oh shit! This part is like even bigger than the previous part." Um, right. But they were very similar characters. Uh, the character that had gotten cut was like a very similar character to Mr. Clark. So I was like, 
oh yeah, probably cut for budget reasons, but also cut because um, he was, you he don't need two sympathetic adults. Right. You need one. That's it. All the other adults go, no, you're crazy. And so when I came into, uh, when I read those first three scripts, uh, when I came into the table read, I, you know, saw the duffers and I was just like, guys, this is like great. This is the, this is like Stephen King directed by Steven Spielberg. <laughs> um, like literally like those two, I made those two references to them and they were like, yeah, yeah, we're just ripping off all our favorite people. <laughs> um, and obviously they were doing more than that, but you know, they're, they're a little, uh, self-deprecating in that, in that right. moment. Um, but yeah, it was like, you know, like I grew up obviously watching Steven Spielberg movies and like just being obsessed um, with those and then reading Stephen King being obsessed with that. And it was like, you know, that, that perfect storm that never happened, but should have at some point. Right. Mm -hmm. Like Stephen mm -hmm. King should have adapted or Steven Spielberg should have adapted Stephen King at, right. that, at some point in the 80s. And it would have been just phenomenal. Well, you know, he's got the rights to the talisman, right? And the Duffer brothers are monkeying around with that next. Yeah. And that's going to be. Uh, so it's kind of like, I don't know, not all coming out in the wash eventually, you know, because right. Spielberg's not helming it. But if he's going to, I would imagine that if, you know, he bought the like lifetime rights to that novel or something. Yeah. So I would imagine he's had, he's had plenty of time to sit and think about like the right way to do it. Yeah, I, right. I would imagine that he's probably going to have a stronger executive producer presence on a thing like that than, say, the fifth Transformers movie. Right. right. Yeah. yeah, where he's just like taking the money. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. is. There's no there's no scenario. Like I, have, I have 30 children. I need to send them all to college. Yeah. Spielberg <laughs> isn't showing up like on the set of fucking, you know, what was the like age of extinction? And like, I have notes. No, 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 no. He's not even on the same continent where that's being right. <laughs> right. This has come up a few times. Like we've we've discovered that uh, our theory is that uh, Stephen King and Steven Spielberg are twinners to take a, a talisman reference um, where they're they're very similar populist storytellers um, that just dabble in different tones usually. Right. Uh, and then sometimes they can get really close to each other. Uh, and in those instances, it's like that's where. You know, the, the famous story that I always bring up is that Spielberg tried to get King to write the screenplay for Poltergeist. Like he actually sat him down and said, hey, I want to do a haunted house movie. You know, will you write the, the screenplay? And I can't imagine. Uh, I, I mean, I love Poltergeist. It's one of my all time favorite movies. I can't imagine like if that had actually happened, like what would that movie be? Because so much of you know, Spielberg has a screenwriting credit on that movie now. And so much of that is. Everything you love about Spielberg is kind of in there. The family dynamic, the there's schmaltz and there's the awe of the supernatural, which you can get in those that era, you know, like the looking at, say, the ending of Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, he plays up the awe of the ghosts and the supernatural. So, so much of that has got so much of Spielberg's DNA in it. But like, what would the Stephen King version of Poltergeist look like? It would probably be meaner. You know, I, I have to imagine it'd be a meaner, darker story. Would that have actually gotten made? You know, who, who fucking knows? But uh, uh, but yeah, that is it's always going to be the, the great like missed opportunity, because even if Spielberg today said, you know what, I'm going to adapt a Stephen King thing. It, it's it's just different. He's a different filmmaker now than he was in, in the 80s, you know. And obviously there's you know, there's there's clearly an affinity there still. There's um, the big. Uh, shining reference in uh, Ready Player One. Right. Um, like a whole sequence 
sort of devoted to the to the shining so um what do you yeah, make clearly, of that i i hated ready player one <laughs> right um i thought that sequence was good um but then i also thought like these ghosts are supposed to be dangerous <laughs> right um, <laughs> you know, I go back to, you know, like I go back to obviously The Shining and then, go, you know, you go back to like Dr. Sleep or something where you're like, oh, no, these are like. These are like legitimately frightening entities, right? Right. The end of Dr. Sleep, the, the, the film, of course, like where they are released and even Danny's just like, I can't fucking stop them. Right. right. And like, in Ready Player I'm, One, they're like the Scolari brothers from fucking Ghostbusters 2. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or the like the goofy zombie guy from uh, uh, Hocus Pocus. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah. The <laughs> Doug Jones character. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of yeah. undercuts it a little bit, but. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a weird, the weirdo that'll stand up. I like Ready Player One, but uh, I will say that that sequence to me is way more Spielberg paying homage to Kubrick than King, I think. Yeah. Even though they oh, do mention sure. they do mention like the whole, you know, the author that that hates hates the work or whatever. And, you know, he he was able to work in the the whole Stephen King doesn't like Kubrick's The Shining into the story. But uh, you know, but that is one of the more fascinating things on the Spielberg side of things. Like his just awe of Kubrick and his love of Kubrick, which is why I think AI is such a fascinating movie. Yeah. Because that is Spielberg wanting to do right by Kubrick and try right. to make a Kubrick film. To me, that's always going to make that movie fascinating because it's, you know, it's uh, two different flavors, two very different flavors. Spielberg's a very warm filmmaker. Um, and Kubrick is very analytical. And so Spielberg making that movie um, and hearing the history of that movie, I don't know if you've ever heard the history of AI where people that assume that all the kind of schmaltzy stuff that's in AI is, is a uh, Spielberg. Cause that was a movie that they had worked on together that they were going to co-make. They were going to make together uh, before uh, Kubrick passed. And uh, uh, so everybody assumes that like all the, Kubrick the cold Kubrick shit you know the cynical stuff and all that that's in that story is Kubrick and all the the warm schmaltzy family lovey stuff is is Spielberg but according to Spielberg and Jan Harlan the producer that like the opposite is true that Kubrick was fascinated by Spielberg's filmmaking was if he had made the movie he was trying to emulate uh, the Spielberg stuff. So almost all the Spielberg isms that are in there came from Kubrick and all the Kubrick isms came from Spielberg because they wow. were wanting to play in, in the other sandbox, which is, you know, ultimately makes one of the most fascinating movies. Like AI is one of those m- movies that like when I, I liked when I saw and the more that I, I revisited it, that movie just fucking knocks me flat. Like to me, that is such a monumental film and it is it is something that uh i don't think is quite had its due people are starting to turn around on it now but uh uh you know but it, it's fascinating to watch it as a as a spielberg nerd and a kubrick nerd now and just kind of see what that you know wholly unique movie is you know this combination of both of those guys a far more successful pairing than the shining sequence in red <laughs> yes <laughs> right i'm thinking like uh what would have been the best thing for Spielberg to adapt. Right. Um, The talisman really seems to be. Yeah. You know, it's a kid. He's on an adventure. You got a lot of opportunities for heart, but a little bit of darkness. It's got monsters in it. It's, you know, he can sort of, I imagine he would modulate the tone. I can't, I can't imagine Spielberg doing like the, uh, the Sonny Gardner home sequence. 
Mm, um, he had that darkness in him, though, you know, especially in this era, because this 84 was Temple of Doom, which was very dark. And, and uh, you know, it, what the Sunlight Gardener home isn't all that far removed from those, you know, kids chained up in the mine, you know? I guess I just I feel like. If we're thinking about this in terms of Spielberg adapting it as a film, which was yeah. the original idea, I can imagine that being the thing that's I, you know, you read another draft of that screenplay at one point that removed it entirely. Yeah. And I think that's the wrong thing to do. I think it absolutely needs to be in there. But like um, I can also just imagine from a from a studio standpoint or a production standpoint or anybody, you know, yeah, we could maybe lose that bit. Yeah. Uh, being that that would be the the most obvious thing to in terms of like a chunk of the book to lose in mm. when you're streamlining it. I know that uh, Spielberg has that darkness in him, but I, I can't imagine him actually putting it on screen. Mm. Not at that point. Could be. I, I, I figure the way that he could have gotten it done in this period. The pr- problem is that he just wasn't interested in. Like, I I think a lot of the stuff that happened around Twilight Zone, you know, all the tragedy and shit there, I think that broke him a little bit. And that's also when he, this era, 85, 86, 87 ish, uh, that's when he was going, you know what, I'm, I want to prove my worth in the dramatic field. Right. So Mm. his interest went to Color Purple, Empire of the Sun, you know, that's when he started moving away from that. If he hadn't made that move then he i think he would it would have been something where he should have pitched it as an amblin thing it's a two movie event you know we're we'll we'll do the back to the future two and three angle right we're gonna film them back to back we'll have a teaser at the end of the first one um and you know to be continued and uh and we'll release them six months apart you know i think that especially with back to the future two and three having gone that route and him producing that that would have been the pitch is like, let's do this. We'll make it a big, you know, epic Amblin, you know, uh, feature film. We're going to have Richard Edlund. We're going to have, you know, all the ILM greats that he works with, you know, doing, doing uh, all the effects. We're going to, you know, he's going to find a new, you know, Henry Thomas, or maybe Henry Thomas actually would have been a great age for that role. You know, at that point, you know, uh, who knows? It's like, we like, we'll, it's like, we'll, we'll do this, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do it as like a big giant event thing. And I think it would have been huge. I think it would have been huge if they'd done that. Um, but I just think his, it feels like his, uh, his tastes had changed at that point. He, he was moving on. Well, I guess we'll see what they do with it. Uh, Netflix, assuming it, assuming it goes forward. I would imagine that's a, a very big project. It seems yes. like they're, uh, juggling a lot of balls over there at Netflix these days. But, uh, if yeah, anyone can provoke them into actually fucking doing the thing. I think it's Spielberg being in the mix yeah, and the Duffers. And I mean, the they're, they're yeah. I mean, they're, yeah, they, 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 over there. they've definitely hitched their wagon to the Duffers. <laughs> yes. yes. I think Netflix is just like, um, we would like to, we would like to just, you to be ours forever. Here's yes. a billion dollars. They want to be in the Duffer business for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, and yeah, like, my my thing is like I'm 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 just surprised that the Duffers are just like yeah we want we want something we want to jump back into something that's as big or bigger scale than right? what we've done with Stranger Things. I think I was doing like guys, a movie you, or something between the two, or like a couple right. years off. Those guys fucking don't seem to stop working. They're like flanning. No, I I remember in between season one and two um, when I. Uh, saw them at the at the beginning of season two. I was like, "How much time did you guys get off?" And they were like, two weeks." 
<laughs> we had a two week vacation and then we and then we got back to work right because you know they do everything um yeah you know they're they're writing they're directing they're you know show running and it's just like you are running the show you're like in the writer's room and then you're turning around and like going into pre-pro <laughs> yep. and then you're doing post-production and like you know they're working post as late as they possibly can yeah um i know like Netflix has gotten nervous a couple of times um, <laughs> <All right. laughs> because they're like, you have to stop. Uh-huh. They're like, we want to like, we want picture lock on this today. You know, like we want, we want this done. And, 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 you know, it goes never, live like, tonight at midnight. You have to. Stop well, they, yeah. They've, they've never pushed a deadline that far, but uh, yeah. they've definitely gotten to the point where Netflix is like, okay, guys, <laughs> they're like, well, we want it to be perfect. The duffers are like perfectionists and that's why. Right. That's right. why they want to be involved in every bit of the process. It's just who they are. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, okay, they just, they just, they just love the work. Um, I think probably, you know, I'm sure Tarantino is probably like that as well. Right. Yeah. Where it's just sure. like, I, I want, every, I want, um, you know, my brushstrokes on every piece of this. Um, and that's why, you know, obviously Tarantino's like, I'm, I'm doing 10 movies and then I'm done. Yeah. You're right. I'm sure when the Duffers are in their fifties, they're going to be like, and when we get hit 60, we'll be done. Yeah. <laughs> Whether or not that actually happens, we'll see. But yeah, I, I think at some point they're going to be like, yeah, you know what? We would like to relax a little bit. I think Tarantino's got Tarantino's written a book now or two yep. books now. And he's Couple just like, them, oh, yeah. yeah, this is what yeah. he's going to be doing. It's just writing books. Yeah. And it's supposedly great. I haven't read the the new Tarantino book, but it's uh, it's apparently incredible. And uh, and I can't can't wait because this is the one that's like more of a deep dive into cinema stuff where the last book he wrote was like, here's my novelization of, a uh, of once upon a time in Hollywood, which, right. uh, which is cool. Don't get me wrong. It's cool. But like here, you know, having him transition into what he had been talking about forever of like, Oh, I want to write the, you know, a film appreciation yeah. book. And, uh, cause I, you know, I grew up in, uh, one, he, he was weirdly kind of a, a film professor for me, uh, because, uh, he would come through Austin and show, you know, these, his personal 16 and 35 millimeter collection of just the most random stuff, everything from porno to seventies porno to like exploitation, to drama, to, you know, forgotten fifties, you know, psychological drama shit, you know, he would show all this kind of stuff and he would introduce each and every one of the movies and then hold like a talk afterwards. And, and like, at the time I was just excited because, Oh my God, the guy who made Pulp Fiction and you know, is here and we're going to, you know, watch these old movies and he's going to talk about him. And, you know, I get to hang out, you know, in between in the lobby and in a circle with, you know, this, this, uh, you know, icon or whatever, but like looking back on it now, it's like such an incredible thing that he did uh, there and such a, an, an amazing uh, film appreciation thing that he passed on to me and everybody else that was in that, that audience, you know, where we were discovering these gems that nobody teaches in film school. Nobody teaches about, uh, the Dion brothers slash gravy train, you know, this, you know, these weird forgotten drive-in movies that are incredible, but like just never like tend to make it into the cinephile conversation because they're not criterion worthy and they're not horror. Right. You know, and horror seems to survive, but, uh, you know, anything else doesn't, you know, unless it's, you know, put out by criterion. So, there, there's so much value in that. And, you know, so I'm really excited for this stage. Like, don't get me wrong. If, if we could get a Tarantino movie every five years until he dies, I would be the happiest dude in the world. But, uh, 
but I am very excited to dive into this book and to see this new stage of, of Quentin sharing that that love of, of a cinema, all cinema, not just, you know, highbrow or important cinema, quote unquote. Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, he's, he's, he's like Scorsese in that way, right? Where he's like, okay, I'm not just a filmmaker. I'm, I'm like a film buff. Right. But Scorsese has like, listen, I'm not to undermine his stuff, but he, he Scorsese is very much a film school guy right so it's like the the stuff that he's championing rightly so is like world cinema and you know forgotten you know swedish you know four-hour dramas from you know from 19 you know 52 right which i'm sure is incredible but it's inaccessible to a huge amount of people whereas what i love about tarantino is that is that he will highlight the quote-unquote trash stuff right and find value in these filmmakers who were often very much journeyman uh, filmmakers who were pumping out three movies a year, but like they had honed their skills because of that in ways that, you know, should be appreciated, but aren't. Uh, so I don't know the, the we're talking people like Jack star it and uh, you know, he's just not, you know, he's just not as well known. You know, he made a bunch of like titty women in prison movies and stuff like that. But he made a lot of exploitation movies. And but when you watch their their movies, it's like there there's value in there. And and we don't have somebody championing that. I think we have a legion of film professors that would champion the stuff that uh, Scorsese does, but not to uh, obviously undercut his his uh, his work because he also is influential in saving a bunch of great early American cinema too, you know, the Powell Pressburger movies and stuff. And those, those are all incredible. And if anybody's listening to this has any interest in, in uh, digging into classic uh, cinema stuff, look up uh, Powell and Pressburger in there. Uh, you can't go wrong. Black Narcissus, uh, a matter of life and death. Uh, you know, there's, there's just an, an incredible uh, uh, run of, of movies that those, those people made. Uh, and I said American cinema. I think they were they were British filmmakers, but you know, same same Western cinema is what I meant. But uh, sure. Uh, but yeah, now I'm getting on my my uh, cinephile soapbox, and everybody's going. I thought this was a Stephen King podcast, so yeah, I will I will shut up about that. Topic but, now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, but yeah, no, it's uh, all this is to say I'm really excited for for Tarantino's new, you know, his last film, whatever that's going to be, and his, uh, you know, his continual authorly pursuits. Indeed. Well, um, Randy, this is usually the point in the show where we allow our guests to tease whatever they're working on next or uh, draw attention to uh, anything they want to draw attention to, whatever you may or may not be promoting or just something you like or I don't know. The 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 floor is yours. What do you what do you got for us? Yeah, nothing really to promote. I've got some stuff coming out, but I don't know when it's coming out. I don't, right. know I don't know what's going on with it. Um, uh, <laughs> I think I'm going to Belize to shoot a horror movie in the spring. Which oh, is yeah? Def- it's got some like big time Shining vibes to it. So Ooh. What's it called? Uh, uh, Pine Tree Mary is what it's called right now. Pine Tree um, Mary. So I don't know what it's going to... Um, in Belize. A lot of pine trees yeah, we're in sh- uh, And it takes place in Belize. It takes place at like a little, you know, kind of tiny resort in Belize. Um and so I think we're going to shoot in Belize as well, which will be great because I'll spend a couple of months in Belize. I don't mind. Yeah, no shit. So yeah, are you taking but, a cruise ship over there? Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Get a couple there of and back. I'm going to live on a cruise ship. Wow. Yeah. I'm just get some in hours in on the way yeah. over there and back. Yeah. 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 yeah Make not? sure to pack a hard drive full of six feet under and you're, you're uh, golden. 
I yeah. just I just finished uh, for the second time. I had to introduce it to my girlfriend. The Good Place. Yeah, yes. good show. Um, which is one of the one of the best shows of all time, in my yeah. opinion. Surprisingly, um, like genius philosophy at work on that show. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, never when, imagine that from. Yeah, when you get when you get actual philosophers and ethicists as your consultants on the show, um, yeah. and you get to just sneak in all this, like there's actually like sneaky philosophy as well. There's not just um, <laughs> community college. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, there's there's actual like segments of the show which are like this one character is teaching philosophy, but. Um, uh, they're actually like, you know, that, that they put in like these philosophical arguments into built into the fabric of the show, which is really cool. So yeah, I'm just going to pitch an old TV show. Yes. Yes. Everybody go watch the good place. Uh, I mean, this is right in line with how this episode wound up. So where I was saying, go watch these (laughs) 1940s post-war British cinema classics. You Stephen King lovers, you. Yeah, and I'm saying go watch a Michael Schur show. <laughs> what What do you got? What's an old uh, thing totally not related to Stephen King to plug, uh, Scott? Like, what do you want to plug now? You I'd like to, to recommend the Wikipedia page for Orville Redenbacher, the uh, popcorn <laughs> baron. <laughs> Tragically died some sometime in the late 90s, I believe 98. Mm. Um, I don't know. It's been a long time since I've read it. I, obviously, I have it bookmarked. And, you know, I'll go through months where I read it every night before I go to bed. But, uh-huh. um, you know, I just I just haven't been doing it lately, but I got to get back. You know, I need <laughs> I need that Redenbacher fix. Thank you so much, yeah. Randy, for for coming in uh, and talking about grandma and uh, yeah. And waxing nostalgic about all sorts of nerdy shit like telephones and <laughs> and, and whatnot. This has been a, an absolute delight and yes. you are great. And I can't wait to see more of you on the big and small screen. Yeah, I had a great time. Uh, and uh, yeah, please. Um, I hope you've, I hope everyone who's listened to this has read grandma before we started this, but if you haven't <laughs> Didn't talk about great, it, <laughs> it's a great 15 minute, 20 minute read. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it is like one of, I think the, the most effective short stories from King. Many thanks to Randy Havens for joining us and talking once again about Stephen King's grandma, not his literal grandma, his short story yes. grandma. You know, this is a title I always like uh, visiting, and it's one that I always forget to bring up whenever the conversation of like Lovecraft and King comes mm-hmm. around. We don't really touch on it in our chat with Randy, but there's a bunch of Lovecraft nods in this one, and and uh, it's not as overt as something like Crouch End, you know, where you got literal right. shoggoths running around and shit. Uh, so I think I always kind of forget this one, but this is a really good one. Uh, don't let me forget it next time that topic comes up. Absolutely. And how could we, with Randy having just come out, uh, on here and, and knocked it out of the park with us? Big thanks to him for coming on. Now, what else have we been up to lately? Well, we just huh. got back from L.A. where we were no. out there doing that that season screaming thing. It went really, really well. Um, and uh, we're going to be talking to you about it this Friday on the Patreon. Eric and I are going to walk you through uh, everything we did while we were in, outla- in L.A. We saw some uh, some some folks who are uh, former guests of this very podcast. We uh, we hung out with some friends. We conducted this awesome event with Mick Garris and Mike Flanagan, Henry Thomas and Stephen Weber. Um, we are investigating right now as to whether or not we have usable audio from that show. So sit <laughs> tight while we while we figure that out. But um, this Friday, we're going to tell you all about the experience for anyone uh, 
who couldn't make it. Although we did meet quite a few uh, KingCast listeners out there at the event, did we not? We did indeed. And uh, Scott can tell you whether or not he may or may not have purchased a, a murder instrument to get autographed by everybody on stage. Yeah, you never know. I, That's the kind of stuff you have to listen to the the Patreon episodes for. That's that's true. We will go over all of that on Friday, I suppose. <laughs> and as for next week on the show, well, we're going to keep that one a little bit of a surprise. We are we are fine tuning a couple of things on that end. Uh, we will, of course, have an episode for you. Uh, but what that episode is, we don't know is the truth. <laughs> uh, and I want to just go ahead and have that on the record instead of, you know, throwing the word surprise around. We don't want uh, people thinking that we've got uh, something, something incredible planned. I don't know. Maybe it is incredible. Who knows what the next few days will we bring got us, Jack but... Nicholson on the game <laughs> next week. Yeah. Nobody uh, spread that we're... rumor. Everybody will just be disappointed. We're working on it, folks. Uh, we don't know yet, but I'm sure whatever it is will be entertaining. Oh, of course. We, that's how we always do, babies. Indeed. Well, yeah, that's all we got to tease for you right now. So, uh, yeah, thanks to everybody who came out to see us in Pasadena. And if you want to know more about our adventures at Season Screamings and uh, in and around uh, the area of Pasadena at that time, uh, make sure to check in uh, this Friday to our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the KingCast. Uh, and we will give you an in-depth behind-the-scenes peek at the insanity of that weekend. Sounds good. We'll talk to you then, folks. Bye. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director. And editing is done by yours truly. <laughs>